compromise is uh, not always necessarily a good thing. By that I mean compromise, uh, you know, when you begin to adopt the posture that every option is okay, every possibility is, is fine, this equal footing, and then you could just sort of pick one or pick a few, uh, it can reflect something of maybe even a, a divided heart. Um, Dan Doriani, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, relates this account I'm going to read to you here. Studies of World War II have shown that some American industries did a profitable business with Nazi Germany until the latter stages of the war. IBM and the Holocaust by Edwin Black shows that Hitler's regime used American technology to organize slave labor and to manage death camps. IBM facilities operated in Germany throughout the war. Indeed, IBM's chairman Thomas Watson received Germany's Merit Cross for his contributions to German industry during wartime. Other researchers have shown that IBM was hardly alone. ITT sold components for V1 buzz bombs. Ford and General Motors sold trucks. Standard Oil sold oil. RCA, Chase Manhattan, and others did the same, selling what they could. This is what happens. When on the one hand, the need for national security collides with the love of money. It's a sobering tale of double-mindedness, of mixed loyalties, of a divided heart. And the sobering warning is this. The seed for that lies in every one of our hearts. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is another way. There is another path. If you have your Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. We are pushing just a little bit forward uh, in this series, this little mini-series in the Beatitudes, part of a larger series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of an even larger series in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, we're just taking it an increment, at a, a verse at a time, a Beatitude at a time for a few weeks here. Uh, so if you've got, a, again, if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew 5. That is the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew 5, honing in on verse 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, would you put us there that day on the that hillside, um, there northeast of the Sea of Galilee, a very real, physical, geographical place. It can be visited and seen today, um, no less real then than it is. 
now. Um, our need for these words, no less real now than they were then. And your word is true, and you are Lord, and you are King. And this is um, part of your teaching, part of the teaching from the King Himself to those who would follow Him, who would be members of His kingdom, citizens in His kingdom. And We ask that you would give us ears with which to hear. If you don't do that work, if you don't assist us, if you don't carry us, we will not understand, we will not take this in in the way that we should, so we are asking that you would please, please be our heart's teacher now. In your name we ask these things. Amen. Some of you may know that there is a film coming out in the next uh, week or so called The Martian. Here's the basic premise of the storyline. You have uh, astronaut Mark Watney. He has been left behind, marooned there on the surface of the planet because his crew thought in the course of the events of of a terrible storm that swept across their base, they thought he was dead, so they left him behind, only to learn later that he's actually survived. He is alive, but now marooned there on the surface of a rather hostile planet that he from time to time says he is convinced is trying to kill him. There is now a challenge before uh, both NASA as well as the astronaut himself. Both sides, both parties are trying desperately to figure out a way to get him home. NASA, for its part, needs to send a rescue mission. Watney, Mark Watney, on his part, needs to figure out how to make his limited resources stretch last longer than they were intended to, also maintain contact with Earth, and, as though that wasn't hard enough, make it to another landing site. It's quite a story. It's quite tense. The stakes are high, and his need is quite desperate. Well, our stakes, the stakes we face are high. The need is desperate. We are not going to find ourselves part of a storyline in a best-selling book. I hate to burst your bubble. Probably not. You're not going to be the subject of a Hollywood blockbuster. You're not, I don't think, I hope not, find yourself marooned on the fourth, the fourth planet out now from our sun. That said, our situation is nonetheless dire because we are trying to figure out how to, can I say survive? Can I say thrive? Um, in this life, flourish in this life, and we need to know how to make it into the next. The Beatitudes. You know, the Pope's been in town, not literally in this town, but around, so Latin is all the craze, right? A little bit. Beatitudes, what does that mean? It comes from the Latin word meaning blessed. What does that mean? We've been talking about that over the last several weeks. Uh, Its meaning is not just about feelings. It's not just about your emotional state. It's a description, an objective description, an assessment of a a life, of a trajectory, of a a direction of a life. Uh, Jesus knowing that we are hardwired to have heroes, people that we look up to, that we aspire to be like, that we are our examples and models of saying, okay, fine, this is who you should aspire to be like. This is the kind of person that you should envy and imitate and emulate because this is what it looks like, these Beatitudes, if you're to follow me. How are these Beatitudes put together? We've talked about that just a little bit, just as a refresher. Uh, the first three... Uh, the uh, being poor in spirit and mourning and, and meekness speak to our own deep spiritual need. You get to that fourth one, talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that need finally being satisfied and met. And then 
the, the Beatitudes 5 through 8 that then come after that. What does that look like? What does it look like then to have had those needs satisfied and met? And so last week we talked about it. It means as an outflow, as a, as a fruit of that, that we will be merciful. And here this week we're seeing something of uh, there is going to be a purity to our hearts as, as well. Christ is showing us the path for our lives. Christ is showing us the path for our lives, and part of that entails a purity in heart. You need to hear this. You need to hear this and pursue it. That then begs a follow-up question, the same follow-up question that, uh, or questions that we've been looking at through the course of this little series in the Beatitudes. And those of you who have been a part of this for a few weeks could probably already tell me what the follow-up questions are. They are, who is Jesus speaking of? First, the who. And secondly, a why. Why are they described in this way? Why are they, these people said to be blessed? And then thirdly, how? How can those things, if those things be true, how could those things then be true of us? So who, why, how? Let's look at these in in turns. First, who are they? Who is Jesus talking about here? Verse 8, Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. From the start, it's clear that Jesus has a certain kind of purity in mind here. It is not an outward, ceremonial purity that Jesus has in, in mind here. In the Old Testament, you have the, all the rituals and the rites, the ceremonial uh, sacrifices and such that, that, by the way, were intended from the start to point towards something else, a deeper need of a, of a moral purity, of a moral cleansing, in fact, and one who was going to come and, and do that. The Old Testament prophets repeated that, stressed that again and again and again. And sadly, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees of Jesus' day desperately needed to hear that, understand that, because they were failing to see that. Jesus is speaking here of a, of a purity that is inward. It is not merely an outward ceremonial Purity it is an inward purity that is in and from the heart. It is in and from the heart. The heart. The heart, understood in the Old and then into the New Testament, the heart being the center of how we think, of our, of our thoughts, of our rationality. The heart being the, the, the source of our emotions and what we feel and what comes forth in, in that. And then also the very seat of our, of our will, of our actions. That is the heart. And this is a purity of the heart. In and from the heart is what Jesus is speaking of here. It is an inward purity. We could go a little bit further, go a little bit closer in, and say it is also an honest purity. Uh, by that, there is no hypocrisy here. There is no um, tainted, hidden, twisted motives in the person that Jesus is speaking of here. There is no place for deceit uh, or, or, or lies. That such a thing would be abhorrent to one who is pure in heart. Jesus really, actually, we read from Psalm 24 just a few minutes ago, he's not just picking up on the themes here. I think you could make a case he's actually quoting from Psalm, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. I want to take you back there. You can see it there. In, in your bulletin, if you want to just go there with me after the first four lines in your bulletin, you can pick it up. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation 
of those who seek him and seek, who, excuse me, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This allows no place for hypocrisy, but rather a deep sincerity, a, a transparency, in fact, of the heart is what Jesus has in mind here. So who is he speaking of? Who, who is he? The, the pure in heart, a purity that is both inward and honest, both with God and with man. And as with every one of these Beatitudes, Jesus is the only one who perfectly exemplifies, models, lives them out. Uh, you, you see this, for instance, in his trial. If you want to keep your thumb there in Matthew 5 and turn with me to the, towards the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, I'll just pick it up. Uh, let's see here, verses 57 and through 60. Matthew 26, verses 57 to 60. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following them at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. You see, as sharp, as sharp as these legal minds were that were arrayed in harness against Jesus and as hostile and as hot as their hatred was towards him, as much as badly as they were trying to find some charge to lodge against him, something that would stick, they couldn't find anything. They could not find anything. Now, that's natural for Jesus because, of course, he is pure in heart, you know, to the supreme. Not us. Not us. Oh, we cry for authenticity, right? That's like the, the, the cry of our generation and our age. Real, be real. We cry, we insist on the authentic and the real and the transparent. And some of us even have meters, special instrument panels, it would seem, that, that just go off when we have any sense whatsoever of sniffing anything that sounds insincere or hypocritical. It just, it just goes off. But we ourselves hide and wear masks so no one can see and no one can know the real us. And what's interesting is that Jesus agrees with our desire for transparency and authenticity and sincerity with the people around us. He agrees with that desire that we would have for, for the people around us. The problem is, for us, I put problem in quotation marks, he insists on it with us as well. And he is willing to turn the screws in our lives to bring it about. And, and thank goodness that he is. Thank God that he is. That he is determined to bring about what he demands in our lives. Talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Jesus, Christ, Jesus is showing us the path here. We need to heed and pursue this. Okay, that's the who. Who is he speaking of? Why? Why are they described this way? Why are they said to be blessed? Uh, well, let's look at the text. I mean, it's fairly simple. Blessed are 
the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I was saying something earlier about the way the Beatitudes are structured. In some commentaries, they've got, I think they're onto something here. There's an interesting way in which they're structured. If I had a dry erase board, I would try and draw this out for you. But, but in essence, you can kind of see, if I could explain it this way, you see the, a, a, um, the first three, as they are, if you will, filtered through the fourth one, then come out expressing themselves in the fifth through eighth. So you have the first three being poor in spirit and, and mourning that spiritual poverty and therein being meek in our relationships with one another and then having that, finding ourselves deeply in our souls satisfied by the gospel, the finished work of Jesus, our, our hungering and thirsting for righteousness being met in that way and then expresses itself in those five through eight. So put it, and you can almost track them like this. And this is where some of the commentaries are, I think are helpful. To the degree that you are poor in spirit and you recognize that and that Jesus is all that you have, you therefore will then, and he matches up with the, the, the fifth beatitude, um, be merciful to others. Or if you take the second one, just kind of moving down the columns, and this is where it comes into play today. Uh, to the degree that you're mourning that spiritual poverty, mourning the sin in your life, you will therein be pure in heart as well. Uh, what is Jesus saying here? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, how in the world is that possible? Um, and, and when would this, when is this supposed to, to take place? In two phases. I think we're in one right now. To see God now. To see God now and to see God then. Now, how is that possible? The undivided heart. The one that longs for God and is living for God chiefly above all things has new eyes. A new way of seeing. Can see things truly. Can see things with a sense of expectancy. The pure in heart. In that sense, even in this day, even in this world now, can see God, for instance, in nature, seeing the power of God behind creation, seeing the design and the intelligence of God in all the intricacies of creation, seeing God in, in the times, in history, in His hand upon things in the past, seeing God's hand in our times now, even in current events. The one who is pure in heart can see God now, but not just that, but in our own lives. There's this vibrant, living relationship between the creature and the Creator such that the, the, the one who is pure in heart can see God at work in response and, and answer to prayer. Working in their own hearts, working in the hearts of, of others around them as well. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they can, will see God even now, but not just now, but then. There's a future element to this, of course, as, as well. There's a sense in which the person who is pure in heart and and, and living that out even now is on a trajectory of seeing God in an even more dramatic, powerful, astonishing way in the future. The, the Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 3. It's towards the end of the New Testament. If you're trying to find it, it's after the first and second Peter. You have 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation, 1 John, 1 John 3, verse Two, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, 
We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. There's a future element here. A day when faith shall give way to sight. And we shall see God. You think just in terms of of how it's been described, in terms of how things once were. When you read Genesis, and you see that it was the common, if can I say, ordinary experience for Adam and Eve before the fall, as they would walk in the garden in the cool of the day to see God, to be walking with God. That's what we're told there in the book of Genesis. And so it's not surprising that then when you turn to the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, if you want to turn there with me, Revelation chapter 22, you see something of this picked up again. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Then his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is like a courtroom, a royal courtroom, where the, uh, the, it's, it's the, the king is accessible to only his closest attendants, and that's us, there in his presence. So why are these folks described in this way? Why? Why are the pure in heart described as blessed? Because they shall see God. Now, then, it's kind of like the doxology as we sing from time to time, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. That's what we're seeing something of here. It's the Genesis and Revelation are the bookends of human history. Telling us uh, what we were made for, who we were made for, where we come from, And for the follower of Christ, where we're going. Blessed blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You understand that that when when you rightly hear what Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is not a terror, but a delight. That proposition, that promise, that hope. When you understand and you hear rightly what Jesus is, is saying here, this is not something that we should dread, but something that we should look forward to. When you really hear what Jesus is saying, this is not something that we should shy away from and somehow be embarrassed about, because it sounds too crazy, too wild here, too mystical, but rather something, a conversation that we should draw people into, because this is not some vain, empty delusion, but rather... The deepest, the greatest, most profound, astounding realization to our deepest desires that we would see God. Jesus is showing us the path here. We need to heed this and pursue it. Well, that takes us to the final question. 
not just who is he speaking of and uh, why are they described this way, but how can this, if those things be true, which they are, those things then being true, how then can these things be true of us? I'll just say through two ways. Through the message of the gospel and by the power of the Spirit. Through the message of the gospel, that message that we begin with and keep beginning with every day. Roger alluded to it a few minutes ago. I heard him say it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and that great line, is, as Philip Yancey is oftentimes quoted as saying, uh, that means, the repercussions of that means, because it's by all those things alone, that there's nothing that we can do in any way, shape, or form to make God love us any more than He already does. And equally so, there is nothing that we can do in any shape or form that would cause him to love us any less than he already does. Such as the security. Such as the security. And the degree, as you, when you take that, embrace that, and it seeps into your bones, it works deep change in your heart. Deep, profound change in your heart. You've, you realize you've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to prove. All that striving, that life of drivenness, all because you are unsure of how people think of you. That's done. You don't just lay that aside. You've got nothing to prove. Nor do you have any masks that you've got to wear. All, all that uncertainty, all that, that worry, all that energy spent on pretending that you're something, someone that you're not because you're unsure what you are or what you're not. It's done. It's done because of the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel brought to bear into our hearts, and secondly, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you need to understand this, Jesus' work, in a sense, was not done when he ascended to heaven. It just started, in, in a sense. It just got kicked off. He, uh, he makes clear... You can see this in several places in the Scriptures. I just encourage you to turn with me to John 14. John 14 in this promise that he makes to the apostles. John 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that word, he says, I will give you another helper, another the Greek word is paraclete. It can be translated counselor or advocate or helper. Different ways. It's a, it's a rich term. But the main idea is this. I have been this for you. I am sending one who is going to pick up where I left off and press it harder and further. The Holy Spirit. As he helps you, as he takes the finish, what I have finished, what I have accomplished, and applies it, to your heart. My having died the death you deserve to die and lived the life that you should have lived and as he presses that reality into your heart setting you free. Even maybe we could say more specifically making us increasingly pure in heart. So how, how can these things be true of us? Pure in heart than seeing God and all that's richness. By the, through the message of the gospel and by the power of the Spirit. Chameleons. 
Chameleons are amazing creatures. I looked this up yesterday. You know there are, as of this past summer, biologists have tracked there are some 202 different species in the world counted as of summer 2015, 202 species of chameleons. They are amazing creatures. Uh, some of you may, may know that they have these rapidly extrudable tongues, of course. They have these independently freaky mobile eyes. Most of them have prehensile tails. But that's, of course, not what chameleons are known for, right? Chameleons are known for the ability to change their, the, the color of their skin. And by the way, that's not just through pigment change. This is astounding. Get your head around this. They do it through changing the spacing and positions of nanocrystals that are in their skin. And when they change the position and the spacing of the nanocrystals in their skin, it alters the reflection of the wavelengths of light that are striking those crystals, therein creating a different color. That's an amazing design. That's an astounding design. Now, why do they do that? Well, of course, I mean, sometimes the, the male's ticked off because another male is, you know, checking out his lady friends. Or it could be because of a predator. It's, you know, the main deal is because of what? Camouflage. To blend in. Which is great if you're a chameleon. Friends, you're not a chameleon. You're not a chameleon. You're not made to be a chameleon. You're not supposed to be a chameleon. Just blending in. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. For they shall see God. How can this be true of you? Read this book and let it read you. Read this book and let it read you. Wrestle through with your, your questions. Wrestle them down to the ground. Get the answers that you need. And, and then ask him when you're ready. Ask him. So for some of you, something it may go something like this. Lord, I, I, am, I am sick and tired of jumping through all the hoops and wearing all the masks. I want to be real. I've spent my whole life running my life, ruining my life, and running from you. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm giving it to you. For others of us, it made the prayer may need to go something like this. Lord, I've forgotten. I used to know, I think. I've forgotten, though, what it was like to be real. I have forgotten what it was like to be pure in heart, honest, really, transparent, really, before you and, and others. I've lost my way. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I don't know how I got here, but this is not who I want to be. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Help me see. And my friends, he delights to hear such prayers. He delights to hear such prayers and answer them richly. Who is Jesus speaking of here? Why are they described that way? And how can those things be true of us? Let me end with this last question. I'll throw in a bonus question. What would this look like? What would this look like just on the ground, you know, in a human experience? I'll tell you my story, just, just briefly. And to, to do that, I've got to take you back to the spring of 1988. And uh, uh, my younger brother's high school graduation. Um, the, the ceremony was over. And uh, crowds of people are, are, are milling 
about friends and family or are, are getting, some are getting acquainted for the first time, some are, are catching up, while of course the graduates are all over here, you know, yucking it up and getting pictures taken with one another and their teachers and, and, and all of that. And, and my, I was somewhere over here. I don't know what I was doing, talking with somebody. My parents were over here and they struck up a conversation with a, a, a young lady named Cindy. And Cindy was part of my graduating class from three years prior, lived in our neighborhood, in fact. So they're catching up and, and small talk and such. And at one point, I don't know why, she asked how I was, what I was up to, and then said this astonishing thing. You know, the thing about Richard is he's real. What you see is what you get. Now, that's an astonishing statement for her to make. One, it's a high compliment that I aspire, aspire every day to actually live up to. It's also an astonishing statement that she would have made of me because we grew up going to the same schools. And for her to say that of me is really surprising. But here's the thing. Is that she, I think she knew something of my storyline. I was a very insecure kid growing up. Elementary, middle school, high school. I had no sense of self whatsoever. My sail was moving and tacking with whatever wind was blowing. I wanted to not just be popular, I just wanted to be liked. And I was struggling, I felt like, with that. And so I was willing to go and do and throw myself after whatever the in-crowd was after and, and all about it. And whatever it was that seemed to drive them and satisfy them, I was all for, and I tried it, and none of it satisfied me. So by the time I got to the end of my junior year of high school, I was discontent, angry, and miserable. And you could see it. People would get out of my way in the hallway. Here comes Mr. Discontent and Angry and Miserable. Oh, he's fun to be around. And then I met Christ. Or rather, he met me. I was exposed to the gospel, or rather exposed by the gospel. And I came to see what my real need was, my need of a Savior. And he helped me by his Spirit to understand the significance of his finished work for me once for all and set me free. And it, it, now, by no means, by no means, I'm going to stress, I aspire to live up to that compliment I mentioned earlier. But that did set in motion a transformation from the ground up, inside out, that was so dramatic that other people could see it in ways that I, I, I didn't even know. God is good. And the gospel is true. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, these are sweet words indeed. Words that we would long to be true of us. Um, the purity of heart, that, that inner, deep, honest, transparency and sincerity before you and each other and the promise and assurance that now 
in some powerful, amazing ways, and then more deeply forever, we could see You. We thank You. We thank You for teaching this to us. We thank You for showing us what it looks like in Your own life. And thank You for Your ongoing work of changing hearts and changing lives. And we pray that You'd help us to hear. Help us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I may ask our ushers to now...